Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast of all things Berserk from the community at Skullknight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today is a full crew, including Azeel. Hey, folks. Grail. Hey. And Gabolatula. Hello, hello. We are here uh, to recon- reconvene to talk about Volume 27, Part 1, as our next reread. Uh, before we get into that, there's only a little bit of news, uh, as you may imagine. Uh, uh, I think it's two weeks from now, uh, the 24th, Christmas Eve, is when Volume 41 is set to be released. I um, hope you have yours pre-ordered. Uh, there's a couple special bonuses that are coming uh, with that one, if you have it pre-ordered. But just, I want to say two hours ago, someone leaked the cover. And it has Guts uh, facing the camera. Not camera, wow. Uh, facing uh, <laughs> the viewer. The viewer, yeah. A hand on the Dragon Slayer. Uh, and behind him, uh, in terms of the orientation, is uh, Guts and uh, the boy with the full moon in the background. You mean Casca and the boy? What did I say? Guts. Weird. Yeah, Casca and the boy. Over uh, the moon and then over the uh, cherry blossom tree as well. Very cool. Uh, very CG-looking cover, not a painting. The story here, guys, is that we were not sure what was going to be on the cover of 41, given, you know, Mira's untimely passing. Uh, the cover had, not, the volume had not even been announced, even close to it, by the time he passed away. So no one was sure if he had prepared for this, what the situation would be with the cover. So this is kind of like a parting look at, uh, you know, Berserk covers. So it's a big... Big deal in terms of this whole spectrum story of Berserk. What do you guys think? Well, it's very blurry, so it leaves a lot to the imagination. But um, yep. I, I like what I can see in terms of the overall layout. I'm glad Casca and the boy made it on there. Yeah, same here. Pretty rare to have Casca on a cover. Yeah. But it's obviously significant volume for her. Absolutely. The past two volumes, of course. But mm. this one in particular. Also, the boy, uh, never been on a cover before. He's been on a poster before. But uh, yep. never a cover. Unless you want to count volume 20. It's kind of cheating, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, technically, take no, it. it's not it's not, cheat- it's not cheating. <laughs> well, then what about volume uh, 22? Huh? When Griffith's there, huh? Does that yeah, count? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's going a bit far. Let's, let's draw okay. the line at, uh, at Griffith. But I, I sure. do think uh, as a demon child, he counts as being on the cover. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the same person. And as, as far as the uh, 41 cover, uh, yeah, too blurry to tell right now. My main question uh, before was, uh, did Mira have the time to do an illustration? Uh, I'm still not sure uh, with this one, if it's something he did or something someone did uh, imitating his style or something he started and didn't have time to finish and someone finished it for him. So, uh, yeah, kind of curious yeah. to see more, but yeah. we'll see. I imagine that'll be more clear once we see it in high high resolution. Yeah. Maybe. The composition itself doesn't really strike me as something that Miura would do. Uh, I guess it's just the placement of Casca, and, the, and it seems almost arbitrary to me, uh, whereas he's usually, what's the word, intentional about the placement of things. Uh, although this one does, you know, we're kind of talking around it. It kind of tells a story, right? Guts facing away from his family, uh, facing towards some kind of this gloomy color in the corner there, mm. whereas the, to the back of him is very joyful. That tells a sort of story in terms of the composition of it. I, I do think it's possible he had individual elements uh, halfway done and they composed it afterwards mm-hmm. to make the cover. Uh, that's one of the things I was thinking about. 
obviously can't tell for sure now and maybe we'll never know but uh yeah, yeah that's that's what i had in mind yep so that's that, and we'll know more about that in the next two weeks when that finally hits the stands, along with the inside uh, content, what that will be. Uh, could be some surprises in there. I look forward to whatever they have put together for the final volume. Um, but aside from that, there is pretty quiet. I think there's been some Osaka news uh, about the venue itself, but it's not really worth just you know saying here. I'm talking about the next version of the exhibition. I don't think there's been really uh, many news on that front. Just uh, they're reminding people that they can access, because it's outside of uh, an amusement park, but you don't have to pay for the park to access the exhibition. It's, it's part of the complex, but the halls where the exhibition takes place uh, are accessible with separate tickets. And also the tickets that were being sold are sold uh, at specific hours and specific days. So you can't just buy a ticket and come anytime you want. You've got to come at a specific time. So I've been doing a lot of uh, reminding people of these things. Uh, also showing, they showed a, co- a couple of pictures of uh, of the hall. Looks pretty good. Looks better than uh, what they did in Tokyo. Uh, in my opinion, I think they've got more space. Um, but yeah, not, not much uh, to see and not much we can do since uh, we're not going to be able to attend it. Right. Yeah. Actually, I guess the only real news piece uh, is about Japan, you know, closing its borders to uh, people again. Uh, mm-hmm. So there was a time when it was like, ah, oh, things are starting to quiet down. Maybe there's a chance. Uh, nope. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. So that's too bad. Yeah, it really is. But there's always the hope that, you know, over the over time, they'll recognize that Berserk has a large international community and it would make sense to you know, host it again when things quiet down. Who knows? Well, it's also possible uh, they've got another, like a few other cities planned. They space mm-hmm. them up enough that uh, by then uh, borders will have opened up. Well, we'll see. It was always a stretch uh, to hope that things would be good for Osaka. Of course, with the new Omicron variant. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's just dead in the water. But uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe next year, maybe by the end of next year, if the um, how do they call that? The road show goes on long enough. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I don't actually know, and I don't think anybody knows what the legs are for this thing in terms of the length, the duration overall. Uh, we just know about the the immediate next venue, which is Osaka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they on purpose they're not planning too far ahead because uh, obviously with the coronavirus things might be cancelled abruptly, and also yeah. they're probably waiting to see like. For example, if nobody showed up in Osaka, they might say, eh, well, let's, write it, let's wrap it up. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll see. Yeah. Hopefully it's successful, I guess, in its next iteration. Yeah. Bring it to San Francisco. Uh, why not? Yeah, come That's visit us, guys. We'll go yeah. see the Ber- Berserk uh, exhibition together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got to come to Europe first, but... Uh, yeah. Nah, that's okay. It to- <laughs> bring, it, bring, it to, bring it to Baltimore. Why not? <laughs> yeah, sure. big uh, big cultural center of the world. <laughs> hey, I think uh, there's a there's a furry con there every year. Oh my <laughs> god, there's people out there. I don't know. Oh, they love the Zod statue. <laughs> they yeah, literally see? literally love it. Leaving money on the table by not coming to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and get started. Unless there's anything else, any other berserk news? Um, not that I know of. Okay, so volume twenty seven. An action-packed volume from start to finish. 
Uh, we start with the cover. Let's talk about the cover. I've always seen this one as a recreation of Volume 1. Is it not? I mean, it's the same sort of pose, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do think it's meant to evoke uh, Volume 1. Mm-hmm. Modern guts. With a few extra bits and bops, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chronologically, it's showing him with the white patch of hair. You know, technically before he acquires it on the first few pages, he'll mm-hmm. have it by the end of the volume. So, But it's kind of an update for with guts in the new armor versus guts in his black swordsman armor Yep, from volume one. So that's neat. And of course, the beast kind of trailing behind him with the eyes look like it's stabbing into him, basically. Very cool. Yeah. It's a decent cover. I don't know. It's just okay. <laughs> God is being facetious because he has this one tattooed on him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You liked it enough to put it on your body permanently. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Where is it? You don't mind me asking. It's on my butt. <laughs> no, I have yeah, it on my I have it on my right arm. Um, oh, that's good. That way yeah. you don't have to spread to see the whole thing. Like a- <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's always annoying when they bind things like that. <laughs> Great. Good, good cover. I like it a lot. It's a lot of people's favorite cover. Uh, I've seen that a lot. When we did the volume poll, I think it polled pretty highly. Yes. Uh, it's a nice symmetrical cover facing the audience. It's right? iconic. Yeah. Very nice to look at. Very, it's a very guts expression. I'll tell you that for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's neutral, right? It's not. He's not slashing at something. It's just a mood cover. Yeah. Atmosphere that's being conveyed, which I like a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Inside, we have the two posters. Uh, for some reason, my Dark Horse edition, I can't actually open it. It's stitched together. That's okay. I know what it is. It's a Sigiro training uh, with Serpico there as well, I think. I can, I'm kind of peeking through and seeing it <laughs> in the oh, inside of my poster. Your poster was stitched together? I blame Dwayne yeah. The Rock Johnson for that. Dwayne! I, I think that it's a uh, Shirke and yeah. uh, doing some sort of little spell, making leaves kind of... Yeah, she's uh, she's teaching Farnese, basically. We see Farnese with a book, and Shirke is demonstrating how to make uh, leaves float, I guess. So I'm guessing she would be using sylphs. Uh, Puck and Ivarla are also dancing in that uh, current she's, uh, she's made. And we see that Isidro and Serpico are hiding behind a tree, <laughs> looking at what's going on. Isidro's got a worried look on his face, so I'm not sure if he's worried that Farnes is going to cause a catastrophe, or if he's just jealous of what's going on. It's hard to say. Anyway, it's a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool one that uh, that's showcasing Shiruke and, of course, Farnes's new vocation uh, as a witch. I do, yeah. And now I see it. It's. I always saw both Serpico and Tessidro being worried for the same reason. Like, are we sure we need to give this lady <laughs> power like that? Is this <laughs> well, a good idea? At least she's teaching her about uh, sylphs and uh, salamanders, so that's, yeah. a, that's a positive thing. <laughs> and the, the other poster is uh, of the Kushan Might, the Might of the Kushan Empire, and it's a composition. We've got the Daka at the bags and the Pishasha uh, above, Makara. Uh, we see Daiba's uh, ship. Uh, and Oh, way at the back, there's Ganishka in his uh, folk form. So it's actually, uh, how to say, showing stuff that doesn't happen yet in this volume. Which is oh my god, you're right. I never noticed Ganishka's fog form in this poster. Oh damn, yeah. you're right. He's overall over over everything. Yeah, it also wow. looks kind of like a circus poster with those two elephants rearing up like that. <laughs> it's a circus performance yeah. you don't want to go to. <laughs> yeah, because they're gonna club you to death. Yeah, <laughs> actually, we. Do we we end up seeing his fog form in in this volume? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah we do. Yeah, but yeah. we don't see uh, because it's it's an interesting thing because we see the Makara. Uh, do we see it on this in this volume? Actually, no, we don't. No. We don't. So we do see his his fog form, but the way the, the thing is shown, it evokes stuff that happens much later. For example, the invasion of uh, Britannis, which is like five volumes later than this. So it's a uh, gotcha. it's interesting that uh, yeah that it was composed like this. Yeah, it's also I mean Daiba's ship being I mean if you're looking at it, it's just a, it's at a very prominent point in the uh, composition. Overall, uh, the only thing that's higher than it is Kanishka. It's interesting because you don't think of the cushion as having like a naval power, but of course, it's representative of Daiba. I'm, I'm presuming it's his ship, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, I do think it, it uh, fits. And um, since there's a Makara as well, and that's something that happens well shortly after this volume in 28, uh, I think that's what it's meant to represent. Yeah. It's one of the cases where uh, back then, because the production was much faster, uh, when this volume came out, uh, we, which we were we were further along in uh, 28, uh, maybe even 29. So Murad already done this illustration and it was used uh, a little, yep. let's say, in advance. Yeah, the Daka are still, I want to say, quite a ways off. Maybe, maybe it's next volume. I can't even remember. It's next I don't well, remember we, now. We do see them in this volume uh, in the Demon City. Oh yeah! Sorry, I stopped my reread halfway through. Mm. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, what's what we do see in advance here is really the Makara, uh, which actually is kind of a spoiler. I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to be spoiled that reveal because uh, when the Makara shows up, it's really super creepy. So mm. yep, that's really a great shot, and and the and the ship. Uh, but the rest of it, uh, yeah, we've seen this uh, in this volume, the Makara and the Pishacha. Yeah. yeah, all these powers that we don't know about yet. So I think it's, it comes across as very mysterious and kind of terrifying, all these things that don't necessarily have a hold on the reality that we know of Berserk. We don't know what these things are. Uh, so yeah, I think it comes across as, as menacing and foreign. Yep. Opening up the the focus picture of the volume is uh, I think it's I think it's I think it's is it in Ganishka's little little fancy room in Wyndham? Is that what what's over his uh, area? Is that where that picture is from? Yeah, I think it's his uh, throne room. Yeah, throne room. I said fancy room. You know what I meant? Excellent. <laughs> fancy pants room. Mm-hmm. Also, a, a version of that, of course, is also on the ship as well. You know, it's interesting. This picture here, if you'll recall. For a long time, we assumed this would be part of Ganishka's form, or at least a hint at Ganishka's form. And in fact, his the first tees of his apostle form are the teeth. Yeah. Those like really big, jagged, you know, outwardly bowing teeth. And yet his actual form is just fog. It's just a little like nice big roller coaster Mira took us on with this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's one of the rare things where I remember arguing with CNC about it. Uh Saying like, now nah, he's got to have an apostle form that's different from the the fog form because that mm-hmm. shows up uh, shows us his magic power, and it turns out no, that's just uh, the fog is the apostle form. So that's interesting that he's got these very uh, peculiar and prominent teeth that are very monster like, like a traditional apostle style. Yeah. But uh, he doesn't have a, just a gross. Uh, you know, bulbous uh, with warts and stuff, classic apostle form. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. a fox. So it's an interesting, interesting choice. Mira kept just guessing with that one for a long time, I remember. Yeah, d- down to the very end, actually. Yeah. 
wow. when we see his flashback. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's like one particular page where it shows the transfer after the transformation, and you see the fog form there, which is like, yeah, we'll we'll get to there. We'll get there. We're we're like nine, eight volumes away from that moment. Yeah. Well, it's your fault. You you're the one who brought it up. <laughs> I know. That's true. Okay. Um, before we go much further, I wanted to do a quick context for volume twenty-seven. This is all about the power and the threat of the Berserk's armor and uh, the face of the Kushan force who heretofore have just been the ground troops. We haven't really seen the power behind the Kushan force. The veil for that is pulled in this uh, section of podcast we're going to do the first half of 27 when we finally meet Kanishka and see the powers that he uses in in, in Wyndham and to rule his army or to rule his empire, really. Uh, But heretofore, that has been really mysterious. Who's leading them and why they're leading them? Now we get to know all that stuff. That's been a tease in the works for eight volumes or so. Ten. Volume 17, when we first saw the Kushans arrive. Yeah. A long time. Before we get to all that, of course, it's really all about uh, the Berserk's armor. The first few episodes in this reread are going to cover it, but it's really about the, the pow- with the power of the armor comes a, a cost to Guts uh, and really to his um, friends as well. So we explore those things in this volume. The next thing I wanted to say about this volume is it's the first one that introduces these little character portraits that we'll have from this volume forward. Um, I always skip over them. I, I can't even I can't even tell you if I've ever read them, to be honest. I usually just skip right past them. Uh, they're not of much use to me. And this one has... Well, how are you going to know who the characters are? <laughs> Why are you reading volume 27 if you don't know who the characters are? Uh, I like to skip to random volumes i mean 27 was the first berserk volume i read yeah uh, it's just a <laughs> weird they, i'm just they kidding are useful to us because uh japanese versions uh are where we saw for the first time some of the we got confirmation of the name spellings of the character uh in uh, the latin alphabet for example shiruke isidro farnese even zod at the time People had all kinds of crazy ideas for how you spelled Shiruke. And, uh, well, it was confirmed that's what it was. Same for Isidro, same for many characters, even Farnese. So, uh, and uh, early editions, like, for example, in Italy, they had all kinds, I mean, probably still have all kinds of crazy uh, spellings for the characters' names. So that, that was pretty useful, and it's been pretty useful to have this. So I... I can't complain about them. I, I myself also don't really read them, but uh, those uh, those spellings, yeah, very useful. I just like to read them in the Dark Horse editions to see if they messed up again. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I I, I can never not look if it's Rickert or Roderick this time. Yeah, <laughs> it is. My faith has been shook ever since then. <laughs> Okay, volume 27. I will take the first episode, which is uh, Fire Dragon, Flame Dragon, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Grunbeld. Sorry, what? I just said, yeah, because uh, it's he. So it has the kanji for fire, but yeah, fire. Got it, got it. So this is one of those volumes where the episode starts, even though it's at the start of a volume, it's immediately the next second from the previous volume. So we're still mid-sequence with Guts having emerged and finally fighting back uh, in his fight against Grunbeld. So Grunbeld is pleased that Guts is finally back in fighting form, and he tries to strike him with a warhammer, but Guts destroys the weapon in two strikes and then delivers what would normally be a killing blow 
Grunbeld gives Guts uh, the title Victor of the Fight, saying he not only meets but exceeds the rumors that he's heard about them. But he transforms into his full apostle form so that he, he can continue with his mission. He emerges from the fog as a huge crystal dragon, and he lashes out with his tail. Guts stops it. Uh, Grunbel manages to uh, crack Grunbel's face, but then he's blasted back by the crystal horn. Cuts emerges. Sorry, sorry, my bad. Guts emerges with his arm dislocated. However, the armor repairs the damage, puts back, puts him back in the path of battle. Shirke explains this is what happened to the former owner who bled to death in battle. And Isidro asks why Shirke would put something so dangerous on Guts. She begins to feel responsible for the situation. But then she gets a message from Flora through the flames who says that Shirke can rescue Guts from the turbulence of the armor. So that's my summary. A couple, a couple things I wanted to say about this at first was there's, a, there's all sorts of little sound effects and little notations about uh, Guts when he's in the armor that give you an indication of what's actually happening, even though it's a still frame. I'll give you a good example was the very first page of this episode. You can see little sparks happening and little clack-clack sounds where the teeth are hitting against each other for the lower jaw and the upper jaw uh, near where his ear would be. So I guess the presumption is that the jaw itself is moving, uh, which is interesting detail. And of course, he's growling in several several moments as well. There's like a roar, 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 roar sound from it. Uh, so atmospheric detail if you pay attention to the sound effects in this one. Um, beyond that, the uh, two-page spread of Grunbel, there's actually two of them that are just magnificent, some of the most memorable in the series, uh, when you get to see his full apostle form. Um, I really, really love both of them. Uh, the first one where it's just his face mostly, the cl- uh, sharp focus on his face, because of the effect of the flames in the background and what Miura does with that effect and how it plays in the crystals. So all the crystals are kind of shimmering with the fire, the reflection of the fire. So it was a pretty cool usage of what crystals can look like in flame. Mm. I think it's also a... like the fire also comes from inside of him. And if you look at his neck, you can see that flames come out from underneath the scales that uh, form his mm. neck. So it's also an interesting uh, effect that uh, the flames basically come from inside of him, right? Mm-hmm. For the with the scales, that's apparent because you can see flames emerging, as you say. Yeah. I just with the I guess yeah. Either way, either way, he's a light source, and the crystals are you know kind of showing off the light. Mm-hmm. In any case, yeah. and the next one, I just like the I like the pose a lot. You know, we have guts in the lower right, you know, in the foreground, effectively, and Grunbeld is still still transforming. <laughs> kind of pushing himself up, you know, as he's finishing his transformation before he gets fully erect, which is very menacing looking uh, thing. And also very unique design. You know, you hear dragons, everyone's seen pictures of fantasy dragons throughout their childhood. I know I have. And this definitely is not one I've ever seen before. (laughs) Not quite. It's more of like a dinosaur kind of thing, (laughs) right? Uh, And a crystal dragon as well. Very, very cool design. I like it a lot. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because I never would have expected that design before mm-hmm. we saw it. Uh, the fact, like you said, it's very heavy set. Uh, he doesn't have, like you, you can tell, it's a, a juggernaut that nothing can move. He doesn't have wings. And, uh, of course, the crystal aspect, the fact he's very tough. So, yeah, very unique look. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it's an uh, apostle version of a dragon. It's kind of bastardized in a, in a really fantastic way yeah mm-hmm. 
he gives us a little detail whenever Guts manages to strike his face um, that is made of corundum, which is not something I paid attention to when I was in high school uh, science classes. It's a term uh-huh. that was introduced to me by Berserk. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's interesting because it's a, it's a second uh, hardest material in the world after diamond and the toughest one, which means it's the hardest to to crack. Uh, so it's interesting. It's it's what's um, it's a scientific term for emeralds, uh, for example. No, actually, I'm sapphires and rubies. Sa- yeah, sapphires and rubies, right? And uh, it's what's used, for example, for uh, watch faces when you've got a fancy watch. It's made of uh, corundum synthetic. Oh wow! Obviously. Yeah, so it's very tough, and that's why it's remarkable that uh, gods could crack it with uh, with the dragon slayer. A uh, couple other things I wanted to note was uh, when Shioke talks about the armor's former uh, owner, you see a hunched-over figure in a silhouette. It's just a silhouette. Uh, the eyes are lit up, uh, kind of just for effect, obviously, who's bleeding out. And you also see that he's holding a sword that looks remarkably like Skull Knight's sword. Now, everyone that's current with the series, it's not a mystery who that person is. But that was a riveting detail for those that were following episode by episode. That was like a... Did you see that little panel? You know, did you see what he's holding in his hand? And then, <laughs> oh shit! You know that kind of thing. Well, I just remember I mean, that was exciting. At the same time, we did see the skull helmet. So mm-hmm. when guts first gets the ammo, we see the skull helmet. I feel like at that point, we already got a pretty strong confirmation of uh, who was the previous uh, wearer. Certainly. And it also, Skull Knight refers to it with familiarity, you know, when, when Flora is working on it. Those are all, you know, let's call them hints. And here we see him holding a sword that we already know, uh, you know. That's where it's yeah. like, oh, yeah. I'd say those are better hints than this one. But I know I was always, uh, how to say, the odd man out on, on this one. But I always felt like this wasn't such a big deal compared to the previous stuff. Don't take it away from me. I was excited. Yeah, I know. I know. Everyone else was super pumped. And I was like, eh. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it is It is a, a hint. And it's very, I feel like, deliberate uh, on Mira's part. It's mm-hmm. not something he put there by mistake. Or it's just very clearly to so that the reader can say, hey, I remember the shape. Uh, a couple other things. Isidro and Serpico and Shirke reacting to Grinbell's form is, is pretty funny. We've talked about this in the past reread about how Guts and Apostles are so closely tied. Uh, and yet his companions have, until now, limited exposure to no exposure with Apostles until this, this incident. And now they're really seeing these monsters, these huge monsters. and <laughs> Their minds are kind of blown by it. So it's funny to see their reactions. Um, One of my favorite things is when... Uh like the lead up to and the impact of, of guts swing uh, in berserker mode, I guess, like slamming his sword into uh, Grunbell's uh, shoulder. There's this blur effect uh, used. Oh, yeah. It sort of enhances the impact lines. Yeah. And it's it's really incredible. I, I love I love it. It's just it's like a stretched image effect. Yeah, right. It's uh, yeah. Poor Grunbeld, man. He holds it up twice. You know, the first time he just gets the warhammer just gets smacked down mid strike. It's about to strike him. 
Guts intercepts by smacking it down and it bends it kind of irreparably. But then Guts immediately goes for a killing strike and Grimbell just barely manages to lift his, at that point, dented and broken Warhammer. And then it gets sliced into like salami, as you can see in that shot there. Mm. Poor guy. Yeah, there's some Bad really uh, satisfying expressions on Grinveld's face, too. Like, oh, shit, you know, he might yeah. actually hurt me. He really turned around on that whole subject, didn't he? He, he used to be like, oh, what a disappointment. <laughs> Skull Knight gets to fight Zod. This sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that actually reminds me um, that, you know, Guts performs some pretty imp- impressive feats in this episode. But each time he gets injured, you know, every time he's doing these wild, reckless moves that are paying off in terms of the combat, but it's all coming at the cost of his body. So mm. we see his limbs get, you know, literally turned back around after being dislocated, which you can see creeps out of Sidra quite a bit. And um, after he makes this swing we're talking about on um, Grimbell's shoulder, you know, his arm erupts in, you know, massive, you know, multiple, you know, gouges of, of blood. And they make little blood spurting sound effects, too. So he's getting wrecked while he's also appearing like he's winning this fight. This is a short term, you know, viable solution in terms of this, uh, this particular moment. If he didn't have, you know, uh, some supernatural aid on his side. Yep. It's also funny that uh, Grumble's speaking to him as if he can understand him, while, as we know, Guts isn't really there at that point. So he's, he's just talking to himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Been there. That, that being said, those are some of my favorite lines in the, in the series. What he tells him as he transforms uh, when he says the last line. It's funny because I, I heard it spoken in Japanese long ago uh, when I played the PlayStation 2 game, and it's always... Uh, struck in my mind, basically. Uh, I can, it's one of few lines, uh, those of the Snake Baron, uh, that one with Grand Bells, that I can, like, I always remember, even on my deathbed, I remember that stuff. Yeah. So, which one in particular? Is it as he's transforming, that he held as an apostle of the Falcon it's of a, Light? Yeah, it's a bottom line when he says, Hikari no Takano Shitotoshite, Waite Tsukamatsuru. Which Got means, uh, as an apostle of the Falcon of Light, uh, I'll be your opponent, basically. Mm-hmm. So it. uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty. You'll have to excuse my my poor pronunciation, but uh, yeah, it did sound pretty cool in the Japanese uh, PS2 game cutscenes. I actually, since I haven't seen the uh, newer anime, I wonder what the rendition is. Uh, this scene is laughable. I I prefer the PlayStation Two. Yeah, yeah, I'd rather not see it. <laughs> Probably never will. I would not recommend it. it yeah. It's not a it's not a fun time for a Berserk fan or a fan of anything in general. <laughs> As an enjoyer of life, yeah. one should not experience that. <laughs> it's what they play to people in uh, Guantanamo. Oh, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> We're putting away the Britney Spears. Take out the Berserk 2016. Bomb. Yeah. The last note I have about this episode is when Flora tells Shirke that she can do it, she actually puts it in the context of the trials that she's recently overcome. Basically, what she experienced in Enoch, where you know she was possessed by the, the spirit there, and by what she encountered in the Troll Den. These these moments have prepared her for what for what's about to come. She's while she's inexperienced, she has had recent combat experience that gives her, you know, the necessary information to, to come out of this ahead. What I found interesting is the fact she was swept up uh, by the Lady of the Death uh, 
let's say, mm-hmm. the fact she was upset because she hadn't been called in a long time, so it was, and Shuriki was new. That kind of prepared her for the maelstrom of fire that's inside the, the armor, so that's uh, something Mira often tends to do, tended to do, uh, which is set things up, and sometimes by design, sometimes just because it makes sense in hindsight, and you're like, oh, well, this is there, so I'll use it. And just have these things that resonate with each other, right? So, so that her past experience, like you said, prepares her for this very specifically uh, in the end. It's, it's one of my favorite features of him as a writer, and it's one that he uses so consistently because it's, it's just a very thoughtful design to the story that no moment is just cast aside. You know, everything builds on it on itself. And the same can be said of many series, but the way that Mira does it, you can tell how thoughtful he is about it, and he really cares about the characters and the way that they develop. So, I don't know. That, that kind of stuff, I really, really love. Mm-hmm. That's it for me. I'll hand it off to Azil for the next episode. Sure. So, the next one is uh, Death of Hellfire. Hellfire. So, Shirke prepares a ritual to return Gus to his senses, uh, similar to what she did when Isidro first met her, uh, with the little rope and the four elements. Meanwhile, Granbell is still astounded that Gus could not just withstand his attacks, but even wound him. Uh, the lesser apostles under his command try to enter the fray, but are quickly dispatched. Wising up, a couple of them target Serpico and Isidro instead, who have to hold them off while Shirke is in a trance. Inside of Gus, meanwhile, Shirke is faced with a raging maelstrom of fire, uh, which is a representation of the armor's odd. She sees a beast of darkness within it and plunges deeper inside. Uh, she sees bubble of light, memories from the Golden Age, then is swept up by a whirlpool of darkness formed by memories of the Eclipse. And at the bottom of that vortex, she finds Flora's seal. As she passes through, she comes face to face with a fragile flame, Guts' ego. So, seeing Guts tear through the Lesser Apostles is a delight and probably the highlight of the episode to me. It's just, uh, just amazing. And it's not just cool, like cool action. It's also funny. Uh, you, you've got the fact <laughs> one of them complains that it's unfair because uh, God struck them while they were still transforming. <laughs> That's just perfect because, yeah. like, for the entirety of the series, these guys, any kind of you know low-level Mornic apostle is a force to reckon with. Something you can't take for granted, even. Guts has to be careful because anything can be dangerous that can kill you. But here with the armor, it shows a difference in power uh, because they just become pathetic, basically. But why is that is true? Uh, uh, you know, we still see the damage they can do uh, to him uh, when they strike him. The guys, uh, one of them says he's cracked a few of his ribs, so it underlines how dangerous the armor is. Uh, because he keeps taking heavy damage and he just ignores it. So it's kind of, you know, going further from what you said uh, when we saw in the previous episode and what we what talked about. The fact he keeps taking damage and he just ignores it. Um, perhaps my favorite moment of what I mentioned is when he uses a helmet to bite down on the crayfish apostle's arm. Uh, he gets struck, then he bites it down, and it's the same mechanic we saw earlier when the uh, teeth, uh, in air quotes, were uh, kind of grinding. He basically, uh, I, I guess, pushes his, his head down inside the armor, and that causes the helmet to bite down as if it was a mouse. 
the beast mass in this case. So yeah, interesting effect and very cool in action to see him uh, do that. Uh, and beyond that, of course, uh, we see a great scene with Isidro and Puck, uh, who, who are worried to see how bestial he's become. Puck especially has a great moment. Uh, we see Apostle Teeth reflecting in his eyes uh, as he thinks to himself about the similarities between Guts and his adversaries. So if you remember, uh, Isidro thought to himself uh, in Enoch that Guts was kind of a monster, devouring monster. This is again a continuation of that. Gus has become a force to reckon with, but he's also becoming less and less human as the armor, you know, uh, sweeps him up more and more. Uh, maybe a last point before letting you guys, letting you guys speak is uh, I wanted to underline what Shirke says that under normal circumstances, a typical person's ego would be shattered by the armor's art. Uh, they would just be destroyed. And without Flora's talisman, it would be game over for God here, I, as there would be nothing left for Shiroke to bring back. So it's also, uh, again, underscores how dangerous the armor is, how Flora's talisman is crucial, and what Shiroke's role is in bringing him back. All right, I'm done. What do you guys think? <laughs> you got a good one. You got a good episode. Um... Much like the couple episodes in Enoch, we have the action split between what's happening in the physical world and what's happening in, you know, Shirkay's perspective as she dives through guts. I remember talking about the Enoch, um, Enoch stuff whenever she was searching around for a viable candidate to help them uh, mm-hmm. when she was searching. And, and we, saw, we were thinking about how Miura represents the astral world. How it represents these very abstract things. You know, we, we noted the fact that you could see a representation of Enoch Village uh, when she was kind of swimming around, right? You could saw a physical like establishment for it. And yeah. I was looking at this episode thinking about how is it how will how did the decisions that Mira makes to portray what is actually happening when when Sirke dives into the armor? You know, she sees at first it's the flames of the odd of the armor. They're just mm-hmm. this all-encompassing you know, violent flames that she can't see anything at first. And then she sees the fact that basically Guts is being subjected to this turbulence. But Guts at that time is projecting the beast as his visage. He's The, the beast is Guts, but right now the beast is in charge of things, right? So mm-hmm. that's what's there surrounded by flames. And it's enduring these flames. It's on fire itself. But Guts' actual ego is, is within that. So she has to go within the beast to see those memories start happening. You know, things start calming down once she goes through the beast. I just like that he really thought about, this is a very abstract thing. She's rescuing Gut's ego from within this turbulence. But to do that, she has to go through all these things. It's a, I would not know what to do if I was a writer in this scenario. But Miura gave us this very visual depiction of these things. Uh, That's not easy to do uh if you really think about what he had to achieve here uh to visualize these very abstract things i thought it was magnificent mm. yeah and it's also done very like in few pages in the end yeah three or we four see, yeah a couple of pages of uh, those bubbles of light which also uh shook his first exposure to his past uh and of course foreshadowing uh, not really foreshadowing but i guess preparing her for what she would find inside casca's uh, dream much, much later on uh, on the island. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's those really great shots, that uh, two-page spread of her, you know, uh, at the bottom with all those uh, 
corpse parts or body parts, whatever, the apostles of Black Sun, and there's a whirlpool around the Black Sun. And of course, very clever of Mura uh, from a graphics point of view to use that uh, Black Sun as a center point uh, at which everything would spin. And then it becomes just a blurry uh, whirlpool, and then there's a talisman at the end. So just, yeah, like you said, I mean, it's one thing to see it and say, yep, looks fucking good. It's another <laughs> thing if you were in front of a white page and be like, hmm, how am I going to depict that? I, I yeah. wouldn't want to be the guy. Well, it's also just an opportunity that Shirke is basically knocking on Gut's mind. She doesn't know anything about him to then contextualize these parts about Gut's life that she doesn't know. So she's getting these glimpses of who he was. Uh, in a way that none of his other companions are afforded. You know, to him, to everyone else, he's just a blank slate, awesome mm. warrior, monster, Puck. devouring monster, you know? Mm. Except Puck, since he can sense. Sir, yes. Yeah, the whirlpool effect, I do like, it's like she's in a drain, and she's swirling around the drain because of the odd. Yep. But then at the base of the drain, where she would normally get sucked away, that's the talisman. And of course, Gut's ego is also there, trapped uh, unable to move forward or thankfully into oblivion uh, because of the talisman. A very yeah. thoughtful design. Yeah, I would say more protected than trapped. Yeah, well, yeah, trapped is the wrong word as that has a negative connotation. This is uh, rescued. I was just going to say, as a reader, just for that part, it's a real treat to see uh, the bubbles and memories uh, drawn in Mira's current style at that time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, also from Gut's perspective. Right, right, right. Yeah, I always love that uh, when he does that. Uh, first first uh, person perspective of a scene you've already seen from a third person perspective. That, that's very, very interesting. Yeah, the Casca one in particular, is that, that's the, is it not Kisama no Seta, that moment there? No, that's when, that's, uh, that's in volume five, when she's yelling at him that he went at it alone. It's when they're fighting the Black Rams. Uh, yeah, same thing, same, same moment. That's what I'm referring to. No, no, Kisama no Seda is when uh, Griffiths gets wounded after they fight Zod. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was I mean, also, I thought it was a repetition of that line. My bad. What else? What else? What else? Griffith's appearance here. He's clutching something. I. Th- it might be the Behirit, or at least he's grasping his chest where the Behirit is. I thought that was interesting choice for that. Mm-hmm. Mm. And yeah, we see Gambino as well. Uh, I was going to say that most of these are positive memories, but that's not actually true. They're just strong memories. Yeah. Not all these are warm moments. Yeah, well, the one with Casca is probably not. But there's, there's a one, we see the, a little reference to the bonfire of dreams. There's the one in the cave. We also see Carcass being uh, himself. Carcass, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he gets a bubble too. Yeah. yeah. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> I didn't have much else. I really like Gut's ego, the shape of it. I think that's really cool. Uh, I remember thinking at first in that, that final shot, is, the, is there a representation of the Dragon Slayer there coming up from his shoulder? Uh, mm. But as you can see in the later episodes, it's not really the case. It's just an incidental little flame that happens to correspond with where the Dragon Slayer would rest on his shoulder there. Yeah. The design of it is very cool. I, I really like the, the idea of this, this essence of guts still has spiky hair. Well, I can start with my episode next. Uh, oh, I wanted to say real quick, when Guts sure. takes on the Apostles, as Guts, uh, sorry, as uh, Zeal already said, Guts bites into one of them, and the crayfish or the shellfish guy, there's still some meat in there. You know, it, mm, tasty, tasty meat it's or like something. The, we have a restaurant here called the Boiling Crab. It reminded me of that. Yeah. <laughs> 
get through that. Get some of that meat. What do you think apostle meat tastes like? <laughs> Probably not very good. Probably tough. <laughs> yeah. Probably toilet seats and Doritos. No. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Some of his apostles, the ones that he takes on, you can actually see the same ones represented in the big eclipse shot in the same episode with their apostle forms. The guy with the two horns in particular, I can spot immediately. Some of the others, I think you have to kind of kind of squint to see them. Interesting that he did that. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's one of the things, I mean, one of probably the, the big challenges he had to handle was uh, when he started doing the uh, war demons, he had to retrofit those guys who were just uh, gross, grotesque monsters during the eclipse and make them into warriors, basically. Like, how mm-hmm. do you make them into fighting machines? So that, that was very interesting to see. And of course, we see some of them in this shot, like you said, we see... Many of them uh, during the battle against uh, Ganishka's forces, against the Christians even earlier than that. So it's, it's interesting to to see how he handled that. Of course, probably the most, I'd say the most prominent one would be Volkov, mm-hmm. um, at least to me. So yeah, it's an, it's an interesting exercise. Probably had to think quite a bit about it. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I imagine with Mira, the way that he has talked about his work, I would imagine he would enjoy doing something like that. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I mean, probably. I don't. I doubt it was like, oh my god, I gotta imagine uh, cool stuff to do with these badass monsters I designed ten years ago. <laughs> yeah. oh. Man, I wish what I had a chore. Nine to five instead. Yeah, I wish I had a nine to five instead. <laughs> Cool. Well, if uh, there are no further comments on this episode, I can start on the next one. Go for uh, it. Episode 299, Journey of Flames. The episode opens with Shirke face-to-face with Guts's ego, currently a flaming shade marked by a single eye shaped in the same fashion as the Beast of Darkness, giving us some clue as to, te- as to the tenuous state of his consciousness. Having successfully navigated his perilous memory of the eclipse, Shirke observes that Flora's talisman helped to guard Guts's mind after donning the Berserk's armor. As she approaches, Shirke witnesses an overwhelming flow of negative emotions as they threaten to sweep Guts's ego away and call out to, and calls out to him to remind him of who he is and what he's fighting for. Shirke yells that a soul wouldn't be this damaged if he didn't care. This seems to start to get through to Guts, and she summons visions of their surroundings to help Guts remember his purpose. Serpico, Isidro, and Puck are attempting to fend off a group of apostles while protecting the entranced Shirk, while Farnese and Casca find safety in the surrounding forest. The vision of Casca's face sparks a moment of recognition for Guts. Using this recognition as an anchor, Shirke entreats him to remember Casca, explaining that he is Guts, protector of Casca, the branded girl. This is what pulls Guts back from the brink, and his ego is restored, the formerly ill-defined shade of his ego now fully formed as a representation of his face and torso. In the physical world, Guts's face can now be seen underneath the helm of the Berserk's armor, and he takes the scene around him takes in the scene around him now that he's back in control. Serpico and Isidro are currently struggling with the smaller apostles, but before Guts can make a move towards them, Grunbeld blasts him with with some more of his dragon fire. 
Uh, Guts, however, continues to surprise his opponent by leaping through the flames, totally ignoring Grunveld in flavor in favor of helping his friends, as blood spurts from the armor unabated. With the swing of the Dragon Slayer, the Apostles are swiftly beheaded, leaving no doubt that Guts is still benefiting from the powers of the Berserk's armor, but at a terrible cost. Meanwhile, Farnese and Casca are unexpectedly ambushed by a single Apostle as they try to escape. Before any harm comes to them, however, the Dragon Slayer emerges from their would-be attacker's mouth, and Guts appears the victor. Naturally, Farnese questions whether Guts is himself, and with the retracting of the helm of the Berserk's armor, we take in the sight of Guts now that he's lived through his first fight in the armor. The skin is torn from his cheeks, tracks of blood from everywhere and anywhere on his head, and most notably a white patch of hair, a symbol of the mental and physical strain brought on by the armor, emerges. While Farnese is horrified by Guts's appearance, Casca simply growls at him, unable to recognize that he just saved her life. Guts looks at her, a bittersweet mix of emotions evident on his ravaged face. Serpico, Isidro, and Shirke and the elves now run over to join their companions, followed by Grunveld, who appears to be readying another blast of fire. Before Grunveld can attack, the tree mansion bursts into a flame not borne by the Apostle. As the group looks on, including a reaction of the Skull Knight and Zod, this flame emerges in the form of Flora herself, free from the limitations of her human body, and looking more like a younger version of herself. The fiery image of Flora blocks Grunbeld and Zod from pursuing the group, providing them with the path to escape. She speaks to Shirke, telling her that she has done well, and that she and her new friends must leave the forest, which will now burn. Shirke is heartbroken by this revelation, but Flora assures her pupil that both she and the spirit tree have lived long, and that while the sunshine here was pleasant in this interstitial space, the young must not tarry there. Despite the encouragement and understandably tearful, Shirke is reluctant to leave the only home she's ever known under these harrowing circumstances. Flora assures her that it's time for her to strike out on her own, and that all of the el- in all of the elderly witches' long years, the ones she spent with her dear student were her most serene. With that last push, Guts jumps in to grab Shirke and rescue her from the forest as it burns. Grunveld looks on, clearly frustrated that he can't manipulate Flora's fire. The fiery apparition continues to burn, assuring Shirke further that her body may lose its form in the physical world, but they will still be able to communicate in dreams. Finally, Flora watches on as Shirke is carried into the next stage of her life, blessing her and bidding her goodbye to her son, bidding goodbye to her sunshine. While reminiscing on what must have been a brief time in her life, but one that meant very much to them both. And uh, this is the part where I put down the manga and, and wipe my tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this one is is so emotional, and it was a real privilege to do this reread. So I hope you guys don't mind that I took my time. <laughs> no, oh, sure, it's a it's a lot going on here for sure. Yeah. The but problem and Flaw's uh, farewell is, of course, very, very emotional. Obviously. Right, right, exactly. It's 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 a very special one, and uh, I mean, punctuated by the fact also that we get to see guts with the white shock of hair and and seeing how he handles, I guess, this first initial encounter with the berserk armor. Yeah, it's a very dense episode. He's in lots of stuff uh, going on there from. Uh, him waking up, like you said. Uh, one thing I noticed is that the 
the Dark Horse uh, blurred the effect of uh, Gus Blood Wars when she, he speaks to Shiruke is uh, not very good in the English version. It's much better in the Japanese. So that's oh. something I, I noticed. They really do a, a blurry effect where you've got text that's superimposed onto another. It's actually hard to read, which I think is what uh, Mira was, was going for. But anyway, uh, I really like... Uh, what sh- you know? What happens? How it's shown when he, he emerges from the flames? He comes back to his senses. Uh, that shot of his eye, and like you said, we see his torso and face uh, emerge from what was before just a blurry flame, uh, you know, almost formless, barely in the shape of a man. And of course, when when uh, she mentions Casca, which is, uh, I think, maybe what's most important about this is that. Yeah, sure. He sees uh, Serpico and, and Isidro is like, eh, eh. <laughs> but when it comes to Casca, when she mentions Casca, the branded girl, uh, that's when he has a uh, that that uh, click inside of his brain. So yeah, very 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 cool. Yeah, it's one of those moments we've talked about it many times before, where Shirke is the one in here doing the rescuing, but it's Casca that saved guts in this moment, and. It's happened many times before, and it'll happen again. That Casca's really guts, you know, doesn't gut does not work without Casca. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's back to what he said in volume seventeen. Uh, that small flame is what has kept him from being devoured mm-hmm. by the dark flame, the, the big you know dark fire. So uh, yeah, it, it stays true. I mean, even to this day, to where we're in the manga right now. So it's uh, but it was interesting to see it reaffirmed because I remember at the time when we were following the series, there were still people who were saying, "Eh, it's boring." I hope everybody dies so that guts can <laughs> go back to being the black swordsman alone. Uh, Meanwhile, Mira is reinforcing the opposite. Yeah, yeah, because obviously, I mean. It just couldn't go in any other way, really, while staying interesting. So, yeah, it's interesting to, to see that uh, that he should chose to depict things like that. And, yeah, I also really like those shots where you see Grumble fire his fireball. Uh, that that shot, a slice of Guts' eye as he sees what's happening. Yeah. Him jumping out of the way, throwing the Dragon Slayer, which is... Yeah, like you mentioned, Grail, it just shows that his uh, super strength is still there. And it's also a really crazy move that he actually doesn't do, doesn't really do again. Uh, just kills those two guys uh, in one shot. Yeah. <laughs> actually, love to see Serpico and Isidro's faces <laughs> when they see that. <laughs> it's also yeah. funny, we, I mean, it's not the kind of thing you would dwell on very long, but... Uh, while they put up, a, a, I mean, a decent fight against that starfish and the weird-ass elephant guy uh, <laughs> with, uh, with the eyes on his shoulders like like Wild had. Yeah. Uh, they, in the end, they, they can't, like, they couldn't win. They were basically about to get, uh, at least Isidro was about to get eaten and probably Serpigo would have been, uh, had the same fate shortly thereafter. So uh, it's interesting to see that, yeah, they're pretty good, his companions, but they're not uh, at the level yet where they can handle apostles like that. When he throws the DS, I just love the momentum that's shown in the, the trails of it. You can yeah. just feel the, the weight of it as it's thrown. Uh, that's something that's hard to achieve in just uh, a comic, black and white, and 
you know, freeze frame as it were, but mm. you get a sense for the weight of that thing. Foom, 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 throwing through the air, you know. I thought that was pretty cool. He also kind of does a Mario hop on one of the one of the guys to finish him <laughs> yeah. off and then grabs Double the DS and finishes the slice, yeah. Yeah, yeah and you see his cool. impact uh, on each of his the steps he takes as he yep. just rushes for, to Gaska and, and Farnese. And like you said, that's one of Mira's strengths is uh, beyond just the ability to draw well and everything, to depict uh, momentum, strength, movement like that in that kind of whirlwind of blood as uh, one guy's head is being blown off and the other is being, uh, I mean, the uh, Dragon Slayer gets uh, stuck in it, basically, like in a wooden log. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, all that stuff's very, very difficult to do, and he really did it very, very well. The way this particular fight ends with him serving up a platter of Apostle, you know, upper skull to Farnese, this is just a really weird moment. <laughs> the yeah. Top power of the skull is resting on top of the DS. Uh, it's like a bad Iron Chef episode or something. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds um, me of what he did to Zondark, actually. I don't remember all, all the things he did to Zondark. Uh, he just killed okay. him like three the, times in over. The, yeah, in the wooden stairs at the very end. Oh, uh, okay, when, yes. When the, uh, the Count basically comes up and says, well, you know, he's slicing the off. Then he grows tentacles and grabs his arms. And he's like, whoa, you need to destroy my head to kill me. And Gus is like, oh, thanks for the <laughs> oh, tip. Oh, yeah. And smashes him Slams up against it. the wall. <laughs> That's great. And it's the yeah. same kind of uh, just the top of the head being cut off. Mm-hmm. There's this moment where... Um Right, right after that, when Guts is sane, but Farnese doesn't know that yet, you know, and then there was this this potential that, you know, Guts would attack them next, but uh, then the helmet recedes, and it actually recedes in a very mechanical or designed way. Futuristic looking. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it's a robot kind of thing, or a machine. Kind of cool. And then we have this look on Guts' face, which I always thought was very memorable. I don't even know how to describe the look on his face. He's like, he's reassured that they're safe, and... But I don't know. There's like a little sadness to it as well. Yeah. Probably because he got the shit beaten out of him. Yeah. I'm glad you touched on that, Walter, because I didn't know how to describe those expressions in a succinct way. I I could just, I I know I've used this term before, but Mira really excels at coming up with these expressions that tell tell a story or or say a thousand words in one look. And I was wondering what you guys, how you interpret those. Yeah, it seems pretty full on. What's interesting, I'll just say, is that he looks, he's got this look. And uh, then Casca grabs Farnese and just shows some hostility towards him. Yeah. And the next page, he looks genuinely sad. So yeah. it's interesting to see like the just the difference between those two looks. And uh, as for the first one, yeah, hard to describe, but uh, I think you put it well. I think it's, he's, he's glad that they're okay, because there was a moment when they weren't about to be okay. And then, you know, what spurred him to action was rescuing the woman that he loves and then to have her reject him again, I mean, that's obvious. The second panel is obvious. Yeah. It's just like this this tiredness and this, I don't yeah. know, yeah. sadness. I feel like that look is so much of Guts moving forward as his body continues to deteriorate, but he's still having to fight for survival. You know, like, we'll, we'll talk about it in the next half of this uh, volume, but, like, that look of him on the beach when he returned Shirke's hat, that's the same look, you know, on mm. his face to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing we have not talked about much is how hot Flora is, and I'm not even talking about the temperature in the room, guys. <laughs> she's fine. Woo! That old lady's <laughs> got it going. 
I got, got it going on is what I'm saying. She got um, it. I was, I'm fascinated by Flora because, you know, here she is in death and she's still tranquil and poised and powerful uh, and totally unlike any other character in the series, honestly, uh, mm-hmm. because of because of that, you know. I just find her fascinating. And I think it's great that Mira basically effectively gave her two different character designs, you know, the old lady and this kind of like fire goddess kind of thing. And she, he even gave mm. her kind of a costume. If you really look carefully at the way the flames enshroud her, she has like yeah. a really deep V-neck kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very cool. She was, remember uh, what uh, the Volvaba said, she was a bad girl, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can see this on the back of Skull Knight's Harley. Now she's got the outfit to match. Yeah. She, nice. was, she wasn't fucking around, so, or maybe she was. That's <laughs> <not> the problem. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's also interesting. You, I, I don't think Grail mentioned it, but when uh, Grunbell comes and uh, Sir Pico and Isidro are running away, Guts turns around and... He's trying to do something, but he hears uh, Flora tells him it's all right. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's Flora who speaks to him. So it's interesting that he's got, like, she telepathically just tells him, just, I've, I've got this. Uh, mm. You can you can just go. So interesting. Yeah. And, of course, yeah. the fact, it, you know, Mura shows a, her to appear as a fire elemental, blocking a fire dragon. And, of course, uh, Grumble himself comments on it. And it's an interesting choice. I, I've always wondered why, like, if you had something further planned for her, way, way, way further, like uh, at volume 45, basically, yeah, if it's because of the fire uh, that was engulfing the, the mansion, if it's not related at all. So I've always wondered about that. I don't know what you guys think. Oh, I got an answer for you. It's easy. Remember in Enoch? When the Kelpie was there, and then when the Lady of the Depths appeared on the stage, suddenly the water elementals wouldn't obey the Kelpie anymore. Sure. Same thing, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, okay. Why not? Flora could outrank. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's because, uh, yeah, sure. All right. I'll, I'll buy that. As for, like, Flora appearing again, I mean, it's guaranteed. Yeah, uh, sure. Was going to happen, for sure. Yeah, my point was, uh, did he have something in mind for the fire aspect, uh, way down the line or not? But that's that's uh, yeah, that's hard to say. It's also interesting. That was something I think that came up during my episode. You, we see the flunkies mention to Grumble that they couldn't find the witch, and so they're bored, and that's why they want to uh, fight. Uh, oh right. So, yeah. So it's also interesting in case people are having some doubt about what happened to her. Basically, she just, yeah, she just, uh, maybe even by choice, decided to pass on to the spirit world because they just couldn't get to her. Even though she was old, she still was resourceful. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing threw me for a loop, and I don't even have an answer for it. Uh, we see Zod and Skull Knight responding or looking with interest to various parts of the fight. You know, in the past episode... And in this episode, when Guts first gets hit by the tail, both Zod and Skull Knight stop to look. And of course, they've stopped to look for various things, uh, even before this volume. Uh, But they both stop to look at Flora. And it made me wonder, does Zod recognize Flora? I don't really have an answer for that. I think Uh, that he just recognizes that she's powerful, probably. It's a change in the flow of the fight. You could say it's just that. It's just, oh, someone else powerful has appeared. I'm going to look at it. But uh, this made me wonder. Yeah. 
Hard to say. It might also be from his perspective. Well, uh, the witch is dead. Maybe mm. a yes, technically, uh, because he he does fail in his mission. He was saying, "I'll I'll bring her head," but uh, mm -hmm. they never actually get it. But yeah, she does. She does pass on. So I think those shots are just to be well. Something big's happening, and they're looking. Yep, that's probably all it is. Just made me wonder about that. It's interesting to me that they basically stop fighting pretty early on, and from then on, just are onlookers to what's going on. They're like, "Hey, nice here." Yeah. Mm, wow. They're like those those two old Muppets in the theater. They're just always. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Commenting on stuff, a peanut yeah. gallery kind of way. I was, I was saying they're like uh, old men looking at uh, workers and just yeah. not nodding their head. I'm like, mm, yeah, that's a heavy load. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a couple other. This last little shot of Flora and Shirke under the trees is really great. That nice little circular vignette that Miura did with it, surrounded by the golems. Just a nice surprise quaint moment of their you know quiet life together i always really liked that it reminded me a lot of you know what happens with Roisin and her parents the final moment we get of her is her yeah. parents with a happy moment together mm. and a similar mm. kind of understated panel yeah um really kind of represents i mean it's the death of this era for shirke it's the death of this forest but she, she, you know, Flora, I don't, I don't consider that death really. You know, I don't, I don't think of Flora as someone who has died. Because it's even she, what she said to Shirke herself yeah. is that she just moved on to another phase of life as a as a magic user. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's it's a nice, beautiful little panel there. I yeah. agree with that, and I have something to say about it. But before that, I just want to point out that. Uh, there's a great uh, couple of panels where uh, Isidro notices that a, a fiery branch, flaming branch, is about to fall on Shirke. But before he can save her, Gus just like does a running slide or something, just grabs <laughs> mm -hmm. her, and and it's funny to see uh, Isidro's face because it's like his hero moment was stolen from him. Yeah. So uh, and it happens again uh, <laughs> later on in the series. So I I just find it funny. And then we see, as Shiruke is uh, reflecting or maybe hearing uh, flow in her head about her fate and whatever, and it, just that shot of Guts holding her and running yes. with uh, Ivarela holding onto her heart, just just great. I love that shot. I think it's really nice. Yeah, that's that's another icon. Th this episode in particular has a lot of iconic moments, but I think that one is a is a one that sees a, a lot of colors as well. Yeah, a lot yeah. of colorists do that one. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. Uh, that's obviously the, the line from Flora that we we'll, can meet again in your dreams. Yeah. Which uh, did come true in kind of a way. Yeah. Uh, she was dreaming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. But was it really Flora or was it just, uh, you know, an impression of her? That, that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's the thing. And one, one last thing, which is a big thing, actually, is we never really get to know, to learn about Shiruke's origins. Yeah, you right. She, how did she come to be? And that, that basically episode uh, closes a book on it. Maybe we would have learned some more on the island. Who knows? Eh, not sure. But uh, that's a question that uh, has stayed with me for a long, long time. Is how, Where does Shiruke come from? Uh, because it's just, you know, the way Flora talks about her and the way even everybody describes her, She's not just any child, you know, she's a really the beloved child, the student, whatever, of Laura. 
So I was wondering if there was something about the tree and how Shiroke came to be. Maybe she was born magically or something, given the fact she's also a prodigy. But like, it's also not necessary for her to be a prodigy that she would be born a special way, just like Guts. He's just super strong because he's Guts. So, yeah, I don't know. Just uh, I just wanted to put that out there because I've always, I mean, I've often thought about it over the years, wondering if uh, there was something more to it or not. Mm. Her, her lack of an origin does draw attention to itself because everyone else in Guts Party has at least uh, uh, an attempt to explain their background. Even, Even if has, it's two panels. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. With Isidro, yeah. he, he tells us it and then we see a little bit of it, right? Like a page, if that. Yep. Even that is something. That's that, that basically explains it, and then they can move on. With Shirke, mm-hmm. though, it kind of draws attention to itself uh, because it wasn't directly addressed. Just that Flora helped raise her and teach her, taught, taught her magic. Well, what happened before that? Flora clearly, well, I don't know, clearly uh, uh, wasn't the mom, right? That wouldn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it draws attention to itself, I think. She froze her eggs. <laughs> if she can Man. make golems, can she bake babies too? <laughs> yeah, well, honestly, that's the thing, though, is that uh, she she did have a magic tree, mm-hmm. so could could uh, you know it's a fairy tale kind of thing. Uh, a rose opens up a baby inside. A big flower I mean, or something. We, yeah. we kind of Bamboo, reserved that one like. for uh, somebody else, that theory. But it could also be Shirke as well. Mm. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. I, the, that, here's the thing. Like, that, that's the thing, though, is that it could be the case for Shirke as well. And that could be like, uh, well, when you learn about the other one, they also say, well, Shirke, here's the thing. You also were born like that. Yeah, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. I don't know. I, I tend to think, just to the way we've I've been just kind of batting around the idea, I just feel like I'd, I would prefer Shirke to remain just a girl who's good at magic. Not, yeah. you know, super powerful, born from a tree, and that's why she's so special kind of thing. I agree, yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not saying Mira couldn't do it that way. Uh, I just My gut feeling is I would prefer to it be something like Erica's backstory, where, you know, Godo basically adopted her from someone whose parents died on the battlefield. Isn't that the situation? Yeah. yeah. I like that. I like that. That's a little bit of a grounding explanation. Explains her circumstance to fall into the hands of an old man who's a blacksmith. Wouldn't make a lot of sense without some kind of story. I would I would have preferred something like that, personally. Yeah. And also, like, more pra- practically, nothing in the story indicates that she's got some special power or anything like that. She just basically... She's been raised by a... Top level, uh, which yeah. she has got a knack for bookworming and that kind of stuff, and she's been practicing and learning since she was uh, old enough to basically. So that's that's what explains, and she's very serious and rigorous and talented, and that's what explains the fact she's a prodigy, and not that she's got some uh, special gift. For example, like the boy, the, the moonlight boy, he's got a gift. He didn't mm-hmm. learn anything. He just, he raises his hand and uh, snaps his finger. He looks at a pishacha. They go away. That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Shiruke, she, she, like, she practiced and she walked and she learned. And that's how she got that thing. But yeah, still, I mean, she's got green hair. We don't know where she comes from. Eh. I, I get why you mention it, though. I mean, we're, we're talking about this 
it's not necessarily in a vacuum because, you know, Flora does allude to her days that she spent with Shirke were her happiest or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she's referring to a specific part of her life that Shirke was in, which means, yeah, I mean, that it, at some point Shirke came into her life. We just don't know how it, how it happened. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I have anything else. I like, I really like, you guys have both already talked about it, but I just want to say when Guts emerges, Guts actual form emerges from the, you know, the little bit of an ember of an ego and you see his full form and the, the scar on his chest, the notable scar on his nose, the Guts that we know emerge from that. It's a really cool moment. Just mm-hmm. oh, flames. Beautiful. Looks great. Yeah. All righty. Um, if there's nothing else, the my episode is Demon City. Um, we open with a shot of a murder of crows cawing and picking apart the dead bodies of men impaled on the spires on top of buildings. This is Wyndham, the royal capital. Rowboats move through off of the fog and are signaled by the flickering light of a lantern in a tunnel. Raban and a group of men exit the boats to meet a resistance movement led by a hooded man who explains that the group is barely able to survive beneath the ground. Wyndham has been reduced to what he calls a dreaded demon city. Plazas, churches, and seemingly everywhere in Wyndham is littered with corpses. The hooded man says it seems like a place not of this world and that it's almost as if the necropolis said to be beneath the Tower of Rebirth had risen to the surface. He tells Raban that the Wyndham citizens who resisted the Kushan were killed, and those arrested were sent to the battlefield as war slaves. The women were marched into the castle to be used in a bizarre ritual. The hooded man tells Raban that there is, however, one piece of good news. Princess Charlotte is alive, imprisoned in the highest level of the Tower of Rebirth. Raban and his men are relieved to hear of this, since the royal bloodline is unsevered, and that they may be able to re- they may be able to regain governance over the nobles who bound themselves to allied nations. The hooded man reveals himself to be no- reveals himself to be none other than Minister Foss, who asks Raban, "Where is the Falcon?" Before Raban can answer, a monstrous man-crocodile springs from the water and devours one of the men. As they make their escape from the tunnel, Foss explains that the Kushan use sorcery to manipulate half-beast, half-man monsters. It is no metaphor. Wyndham has become a demon city. The same day that the mysterious fog entered the city, these monsters appeared as if they were summoned by it. Suddenly, an elephant pishacha and and another crocodile pishacha surround the group. Just when all hope seemed to be lost, a volley of arrows cut through the fog and took out the crocodile beast. Irvine is seen from a distance, perched on a rooftop. As the elephant beast is about to bash one of the men's heads in with its club, Locust saves the day with his impossibly long lance, stabbing the, the monster through the head and taking its eye out. Locust tells the men to wait patiently and to hide and prepare themselves for the tempest that the falcon will, will bring. The miasma that covers the city will be swept clean. Locust then leaves, telling the men that he is on a mission. 
Meanwhile, we see Ganishka sitting on his throne. He senses several inhuman presences. He says that their efforts are futile, that everything within the fog lies in the palm of his hand. He says to himself, Come to my demon castle, vanguard of the falcon. So, uh, my notes, I, I, I say right off the bat, this episode looks like a total bummer. <laughs> <laughs> A manga, for the most part, is a black and white medium, and Mira does a great job of evoking a grayness to this episode. Uh, the two-page spread of the crows eating the corpses on top of the rooftops is breathtaking and beautifully miserable. The fog is devouring everything, and it's difficult to tell if the black splatter in the background is ash or crows. Uh, thinking of Susumu Hirasawa when, when I wrote that note. <laughs> Um, the degradation of the dead is always shocking and berserk. And then is this episode, we get another great example of the dead being used as decorations as if these bodies were never actually people heads are piled and piled in a fountain. And it almost looks some of the hit. It almost looks like some of the heads are puking water onto the heads on the tier below them. Um, so when, when Minister Foss noted that it was almost as if, it's if the necropolis beneath the Tower of Rebirth had risen to the surface. He's always saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, you know, noted that Berserk has a, a really wonderful motif of, you know, history repeating itself or characters attempting to recreate glory days and it's it's also just in general a, a good example of Berserk's world having a, a rich history. Um, another thing I noted is that there's this little image of Charlotte in this coat of arms when Foss is talking about her uh, against the tower, and it stands out as the one pretty thing in this episode. <laughs> and it's not just because Charlotte is a pretty character, but... Uh, also in the variation of cross hatching and screen tones. And I, I think it's kind of a microcosm that shows Mira's complete mastery of the medium. If you look almost anywhere else in the episode, the line work and the screen tones indicate a muggy hellscape. So, yeah. Yeah. And this one is like a shining light into darkness. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised this two-page spread of Wyndham uh, wasn't mentioned in our spooktacular episode because it looks like Halloween Town or something. It oh, really, yeah. it really does. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Oh well, it definitely belonged. But uh, I mean, I there's a there's a bunch. We also didn't ma mention the fishing village uh, on the solitary yeah. island, which is my biggest regret. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, if they didn't come to mind, they didn't come to mind for a reason, right? That's no. that's the way I think of it. Also, we had we had to choose. Like, if we just said ten each yeah. or fifteen each, eh, we'll do. We'll do it would have made it in there. Year. Yeah, I'm getting some some real Mira was inspired by Bloodborne vibes from this whole episode too. Oh yeah, <laughs> God. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, what's interesting? The most interesting thing about to me about this whole episode was they commented on it multiple times that it's like being in a demon city that Wyndham was transformed into a nightmare, and the way they're talking about it. It really, to me, more evokes what would have happened to uh, and Fantasia. You know, I'm thinking about when the astral world and the inhabitants of the denizens of the astral world come into the physical world, what would that look like for humans? Probably something like this. 
<clears throat> the thing is, though, this is not that's not what happened here. What happened here was a tyrant moved into town and wanted to make a display of his power over the existing, you know, people here. So he basically made their bodies as decorations, this depraved way of stating his rulership over these people. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting because the timing of that comment, the fact that the whole atmosphere of the place changed, just like we're living in a nightmare, it's timed around the time that you would see the cracks that we saw happen at Enoch happening at other towns. So you, at first you might think, oh, it's a, a layer of the astral world has become, you know, overlapping with a human world. But it's not that at all. It's totally different. Unrelated, you know. So mm. that was interesting. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, it's funny. I, I do like the the whole fox thing. I'm in love with the fox thing. It's a... Uh, to me, that's just not just this episode, but the, the, the ones after just genius idea, in my opinion, uh, mm-hmm. for the setting of the city and what it does to it, for the ways in that the monsters work, and of course, for Ganishka's powers, just brilliant. And uh, I mean, one of the craziest games I've ever played uh, in terms of actually making me scared was Silent Hill. Oh yeah, just the way you know you've got fog. You don't know what's what's in the fucking fog. You know those crazy <laughs> yeah. creatures. And reading this, it evokes that to me. It's just those, of course, the corpses everywhere, which uh, Gobolatula described really well. Uh, that oppressive uh, atmosphere, and then you see they are meeting in that tunnel and everything. Then when the Pishash actually emerge and grab a guy, they they don't understand what's going on. And Foss is like, well, yeah, I wasn't just being uh, figurative when I said it's a nightmare, escape city, and whatever. It's actually a demon, demon city. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, and even the title of the of the of the episode, it's a uh, Majo, and it's uh, kind of the same as in uh, Castlevania, Akumajo Dracula in Japanese. Mm. So it's an interesting. Uh, really, just means basically uh, fortress of evil or evil fortress, demon fortress. Uh, 45 CD, whatever. Uh, not to jump too far ahead, but as when you were talking about uh, Ganishka in relation to the fog and his characterization, I think that was a really brilliant move on Miura's part, like you said, because retroactively, going back, understanding Ganishka's past a little bit, it, it, it kind of reminds me of that that uh, icebreaker question that people ask, like, what, what would be your superpower if you could have any superpower? <laughs> Ganishka would be like, I would like to be able to see what everyone's doing at all times uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and be also, able to control them. <laughs> and also not be able to be stabbed in the back. Right. Mm. Because that like was those two thing. things, yeah. And, uh, I was going to say it actually, to me, it's all about fear. You know, his whole thing was living in fear, cowering in fear his whole life. Yeah. And in the, in the fog, you're terrified of anything all around you because you don't know what's beyond two feet in front of you. So yeah, I yeah. think f- fog and fear go hand in hand in any case. It's, al- it's yeah. also one of the things is, uh, and the fact he's, uh, he's got a whole thunder thing going. I think one of his inspirations might've been, uh, Ivan four, uh, the Russian uh, tyrant, Ivan mm. the Terrible, as he's also known. And uh, that's kind of goes with the uh, Emperor of Terror title that Ganesha has got. There's definitely a resemblance. <laughs> yeah, and that plus uh, maybe uh, Vlad Tepes for the whole uh, entrails everybody, corpses impaled on every every city, priests 
hung from the church as well. Maybe not that part mm-hmm. since uh, Vlad was uh, walking for the church. But yeah, that whole uh, aura of terror aspect, uh, yeah. Uh, Voss makes a reappearance here. We have not seen him since volume 17, uh, right before the king passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he is re- being reestablished as he, Foss ain't going away. You can't kill Foss. It's like the roach of the royal kingdom. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad he's back. I like Foss. And he reestablishes himself as kind of like the Griffith fanboy or zealous type, right? It's the yeah. first question out of his mouth yeah, is, yeah. where is the Falcon? Uh, which, you know, catches um, Ravon off guard at the time. But yeah, I always thought it was interesting that he reestablishes that part of him that he's interested in Griffith. Um, as for the, the, the bloodline thing, I almost thought it comical that they're in this circumstance where they're surrounded by the city in the state that it's in. And they're like, oh, well, the bloodline's intact. Thank God. Like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you have other problems on your hand right now. <laughs> uh, but that's not the highest priority. It wouldn't be my highest priority, but I, I kind of get it, I guess. Yeah, people had uh, people have some funky priorities in this, this bunch of people. I mean, he makes the argument that they can use that as a symbol to reunite powers so that they can march troops into the city and then, yeah, what, stab the alligators? I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense. Just like, uh, I mean, the focus on Charlotte and everything, that's, that's how they would think. Not knowing the details of... Uh, yeah. Of what's going on. I, I guess think- it's not a plan, is my point. It's like, yeah, we know where Charlotte is. Phew. It's just like, <laughs> you well, got a lot of work ahead of you. If she were dead, there would be no hope for Midland. Hmm. And it's also, I mean, that's going ahead. That's going you know, too far ahead. But one of my maybe favorite lines in the series, and I know I say that about every line. So <laughs> it, has, <laughs> it has no weight when I say Add so, it to the list. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love when uh, Mule is talking to Locus as they are marching towards Windham after Britannus. He he's telling him about the nobles and whatever the other countries. It only sent token troops because they don't want to risk anything and blah blah right. blah. And Locus is just telling him all of this just you know doesn't matter anymore. It's about to end soon. The true sun will rise over the world. And it's it just to me a good illustration of this. Is they're concerned about their country, mm-hmm. about the war against the Christian, about everything, and uh, Griffiths and his apostles. They're working on a whole other level. And at this point, of course, in the series, the reader doesn't know that exactly. Even Ganishka himself doesn't know that. Poor guy. But uh, but yeah. So they, they are focused on their little things, and that's why they have these attitudes because, well, there's not much else they can do, right? So that's and true. also that's also why uh, Raban is so distraught when the monsters come out, uh, because yeah, it's just uh, I mean it's beyond what they usually could do, uh, what they're used to when they had the hundred years war against the Tudor Empire. So all of that. So mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the last thing I will I will say personally is that uh, I really love this final shot of Ganeshka still in the fog, still have not seen him yet. But he and he knows the apostles are out there, and he also doesn't care. And he's actually inciting them to come. That's a very cool moment for someone who we don't we don't know anything about. You know, we have we have no in- inclination or indication that this guy is an apostle yet. You know, he could just be some super powerful magical magic user, evil magic user guy. Yeah, we don't it's, know. It- 
it's interesting because we so we go from a, a rather I wouldn't say a light-hearted but bright uh, thing with God and everybody and the apostles as a bad guy, and then we come to this and it's really dreadful, and then we see that uh, Irvine and Locus actually saved the humans from Ganishka, and so and this guy. He's not afraid. He's like, everything is within the <laughs> palm of my hand. And so you've got that. Suddenly, you've got that third player. Before, the question was like, yeah, sure, okay, it's some kind of background stuff, mm-hmm, whatever, whatever. It's just a token thing so that Griffiths can look cool. And then he's like, oh, oh no. So it's actually a real guy with real power. He's not impressed. He's got monsters. What's going on? What's going yeah. on? Mm-hmm. So pretty fucking cool. Yeah, he's not intimidated by the apostles, which that would be the natural reaction would be, what? Someone was usurped, to, uh, was able to take down my elephant, <laughs> my favorite yeah. elephant. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. by the way, we make fun of these guys because they are just uh, meat for the grinder. But yeah. I do love that elephant man design. It's fucking cool and it looks... I mean, it looks pretty impressive, right? Even though it gets one-shotted by uh, by Locus and the uh, the croc gets killed by uh, overkilled by uh, Irvine with five headshots in one. Uh, I, I do love those guys. I think those are great designs. I love the armor, the the spikes on the trunk. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, it's, I it's... I get a lot more mileage out of the gator, uh, the, the croc. Excuse me, out of the croc with the human arms than I do the elephant personally. But uh, <laughs> I spent some time in Florida. That's probably all that is. <laughs> I, I do notice that we went over a bit quickly uh, on Gut's uh, white strand of hair. Because at the time oh, yeah. it happened. It was it new was, at the time. It was a big fucking deal. People were like, oh my God, is he going to get healed? Is it going to be permanent? Is it just <laughs> like a problem? He forgot to ink it. So it was a it was a big deal. So I thought maybe we should go back on that a little bit before we we close it out. Sure, I I can't even remember what my reaction was. I don't think I had much of a. It wasn't a big deal to me. I don't think at least I don't remember it being a big deal. I think it's just it's. I I tend to go back to why Miura did it, like the decision, the design decision to change something fundamental about guts. I think is to signify that his journey is getting more dangerous and that it's taking more of a toll on his body. That's to me what the, that the the icon or the symbol of the white hair is that. Yeah, I I, um, I agree. I think the point of it is to show that it's not something to take lightly. Because mm-hmm. we've seen Gus take damage before against the Count, against uh, even the Snake Baron, against Roshin, against Mosgus. He's taken damage before, sometimes pretty serious damage. But this is to show, well, it damaged him on another level. And it's not something that's going to be just washed over. It's it's permanent, basically. So um, so yeah, I do think, and it's in a way to me, it, uh, how to say, it foreshadows what we learn about on the beach later on, which is that it's damaging his senses, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, his nerves and everything. And um, I remember what struck me at the time is that uh, when I was a kid, I read uh, something called uh, "A Descent into the Maelstrom." Uh, it's a short story by uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, which tells of a guy, he's a sailor, and there's a ship that goes down a big maelstrom in the middle of the ocean, and they go to the bottom of the sea, and it's such a harrowing experience that when they come back up and he's alive, all his hairs become white, 
mm-hmm. and it's a, a kind of a classic saying where when you see the devil or you get really close to death, uh, your hair becomes white. And so that's what it always evoked to me, this choice by Mira to, to give God that uh, white patch of hair is uh, getting so close to death that, uh, yeah, it left a mark. Well, as you gave a really classy example here, I was thinking of the sixth sense and how uh, <laughs> the main character has a patch of white hair because oh, he saw too work. many ghosts. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I yeah, that's like a, I don't, I think colloquialism is the wrong term, but it's like a urban legend style idea that if you get so scared, your hair will turn white. I mean, I've heard that kind of thing, you know, forever. Yeah. I don't know that it has a single source inspiration, but I don't, actually, I don't know. I think... What happened with Guts? And Mira's kind of coy about it. They they allude to it in volume later in volume 27 when they're at the house. I think Isidro notes the hair. says, what's with the hair? He's slightly black swordsman at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Mira's kind of coy about it. He doesn't really directly address what happened. I, I always think of it as like, if you had to say what happened with Guts' hair, it's really that he realized that he was that close to losing Casca and he had to forcibly manifest to come out of the armor. That was a unique way to do that for guts because it doesn't happen that way again when volume i mean it's other times he gets dragged out right and with the, the the when the the child helps he has some kind of magical way of bringing guts back but it never happens exactly like this he was never so close to the brink uh beyond this point uh, i wonder i'm not sure because we we never shown exactly the same stuff but uh, when he's on the the beach, for example, we see that Shiroke pulls him mm-hmm. through to the surface and there's that the seal again, the talisman. So I'm not sure in that case he really had to go out so much as once he woke up like he was like himself. So I don't know. I th- I, I, my point is it's never a one-to-one like this. Like when we see his ego, it's in tatters. You know, it's like in this tiny yeah. little flame is all that's left. And then from that, he has to manifest back from that. So I, I tend to see that as a very desperate situation. And that's why the white hair happened. Whereas the others mm. is a different process. Mm-hmm. Well, but I don't that's, know. Uh, that's a possibility. On another note, um, this is a little personal story. Uh, I was an anime only fan, the 97 anime only fan for years. And that's, that was my introduction to Berserk. And before I actually started reading the manga, you know, I would see these pictures of guts from like further along in the story with this white hair and, uh, you know, this cool armor. I'm like, what the hell happens to him down the line? And I, w- I actually watched, um, the PlayStation 2 footage before reading the manga. So I got to see these scenes wow. kind of a bit out of order. And to me, I don't know, the the white hair was really enticing to me. Like, I, I wanted to see, like, well, how does Guts get to that point? You know, yeah, he must that's a natural question. Yeah. It's like you, you put it together. You put it pretty well. Uh, I never thought about it like that quite. But when he you see a guy with a prosthetic arm and you wonder how did he get his arm sliced off or has that nose, nose scar? How does he get that scar? Yeah. The, the white patch is like a mental scar kind of thing. So how did he get that? You know, what's the story behind that? You're right. Mm-hmm. That does kind of invite a question. Yeah. It was cool as hell. Like just that, that, that mystery thing. And I wasn't <laughs> disappointed when I, when I saw the reveal, like, holy shit, you know, that face coming out of that helmet. Mm-hmm. It's like, damn, 
Yeah. Guts is guts is badass. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get this guy tattooed on my my butt. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you had such a personal story about that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Not as personal as if it was on your butt, but it's still right, very personal. right, right. That's very personal. That's it's private. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Got a white patch there too. that's gonna be the end of our show i'm not gonna let us go down that alley dark alley (laughs) slightly dark alley (laughs) (laughs) all right guys thanks for joining us on this podcast we'll be back for another one in a month to continue the volume reread for 27 and we'll see you there thank you thank you bye-bye bye bye I also wanted to thank our Patreon donors who have been diligently contributing to Puella's work and translating Mira's comments and interviews throughout the years. Just in the past month, Puella released a full translation of one of the messages to Mira that was included in uh, that big special young animal back in September. This one's from Takashi Hoshi. And in case you missed it, we're about two releases into a 2019 interview between Mira and Persona's developers. Those are available right now for our gold subscribers and will be available to the other tiers in the future. Meanwhile, Azil's been hard at work releasing about a dozen or so updates in the past month from translation notes on the names of the God Hand, Guardian Angels, and Geyseric and Zod. And for subscribers to our silver tier, there are now just about 10 mini-podcasts at this point. If you like this show and you want just a little bit more each month, these were recorded for you. We just did one on Berserk's various video games and our thoughts on them, Another one on Berserk's stature as time marches on. If you're interested in any of those, please go check out all of that over at patreon.com sknet. Finally, as always, I wanted to thank each of the gold tier subscribers who have helped make all of this happen. These include Piran, M, Spacey Louse, Rombad, Darklink, Dirtiest M, Walter, Modal Eternal, Thomas Lambert, Milbs, Jason, Asmer, Guts, Jija, and Isha. Thanks to everybody for your continued support. It helps keep this whole thing alive.